One of those things that are, is incredible within these verses this morning is that we are to have an intentional confidence. But it's, it's not a confidence that is within ourselves. It's not what the world would call a self-confidence. Because we desperately have a need that our own confidences fall short. And the world realizes this shortcoming within us and it flourishes on the perpetuation of these shortcomings mostly in our discontentments about who we are and what we are and, and what we do not have and who we are not. And by focusing on these deficiencies and shortcomings it provides these fake experts that come into our lives and they imprison us through manipulation, feelings of unworthiness, causing us fear and neediness and isolation. Is there a solution? Can there be a solution to this? And our scriptures this morning tell us, as this film clip does, that we have a solution that Christ poured out his everything both over us and within us to establish a confidence in you and I that frees us, secures us, and joyfully unifies you and I in the confidence and I were never meant to look inwardly at ourselves and to find strength for living. We were not ever meant to have a fake kind of confidence in the flesh that causes us to pose in front of one another. In the fear of being Vulnerable in our needs for Jesus. The fact of the matter is, it's our weaknesses that cause us to exploit Christ, to let the world see the magnificent strength. One who has poured his life out on our behalf. So I want you first to see this morning this confidence we have in Christ, who is our promise maker. These verses this morning, when we we begin, I really actually want to begin at verse eight in the second chapter, and it says, "See to it that no one takes you captive." by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's two realities here that are being spoken of. One is this, that there is a world that is against you. There is a world that wants to control you. There is this world that wants to take your deficiencies and use them to manipulate you into believing 
that you need the world more than you need Christ. That you need to get it all together more than you need to find the one who has it all together. And to do that, they will attempt to control you. Just look at our commercials on TV. Look at, look at the advertisements all across every social media. What are the means by which we who uh, repel... Yes, what? Oh, maybe that's why you're all asleep. Is that better? No? Yes? Maybe it's just not working. Maybe it's just not working. Oh, don't bother with it. How's that? It says it's on. Not on? Well, here, I can solve this. How's that? There we go. Do I have to start over? Not sure it can. Where was I? Anybody listening? Okay, good. All right. So, when we look at our social media, our commercials and everything, the bombardment of them is to say that you need what we have to sell. And then the implication of that. It's that you need something that is deficient about you, of which only our product. I don't think the devil wants this message out today. There's something wrong with you, only dove soap can cure. And that's the bombardment. And the unfortunate thing is that same mentality, that same manipulation, that same energy is within the church of Christ. That there are people within the body of Christ who want to control other people in the body of Christ. The way by which that is done is through a false sense of self-righteousness that is held out a standard, a fake standard of expertism that is held out and said, if you can't meet this, only our group or I alone as the expert can help you. What's the flaw in that? You and I were never meant to point to you and I. You and I were always meant to point one another to the Savior. You see, as a church, and, and this, is, this is something every Christian must be clear of. This church and all of the true church... But especially in this building today, this body, East Glenville Community Church, does not belong to anyone but Jesus. Amen. 
It is His soul propriety. It is His bride. It is His body. It is His mission. It is His glory. It is His vision for this church. Now you may say, Pastor, you're relatively new here. And I've been here since that cornerstone, 1960, was put out there. It's still not your church. And it's still not my church. It is the church that belongs to Jesus. And we need not look to the experts of the law within our body, but we must look to the one who gave the law of salvation to each of us. The second thing this eighth verse is talking about, the second reality is that you and I are to reject that and to live in the fullness of Christ. That we are to live according to this being, His church. And so therefore He says... In Him, and He lays the establishment of this truth, in Him the whole fullness of the deity, speaking of the Trinitarian understanding of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of that fullness, without any kind of lack, without any diminishment, But the whole fullness of the Trinitarian God dwells in the person of Jesus. And it's that basis by which we have the foundational understanding that no one besides Jesus controls our salvation. And thereby no one but Jesus establishes our sanctification. And because of that, no one but Jesus gives us glorification. And thereby no one but Jesus is our competence. And how did he accomplish this? We want to... Look at this through the lens of being Jewish, actually. You and I must look at this at the lens of Genesis, through the lens of the book of Genesis. This, it looks almost like a laundry list of things that in Him you were circumcised and in Him you're putting off the body of the flesh and in Him you were buried in baptism and in Him you were raised, who was raised from God, you also were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh and God made you alive together with Him. It almost sounds like a laundry list of factual things, but the reality is this larger picture is this. What's happening is Paul is unveiling the magnitude of the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. 
In fact, it's the magnification of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve. Even as they were living in the curse, He said, Your seed will save you. It is this seed that is the seed of Abraham that is the one that God walked through the fiery pot and said, it's my seed that will accomplish my promise to make a great nation of your descendants. It's later in Romans that you and I understand that those descendants are you and me. And it's by that promise God sent His Son Jesus to be poured out to accomplish that promise that you and I in our pews today are secure knowing we are part of the covenant of God. And thereby our confidence is in Christ, the one who made promises and keeps them. Do you realize the reality of who you are And what you are today is not by accident. But you're here because He made a promise long ago for you to be here. You're here because there was a promise made long ago for you to be here. That should change your life. That should change your worldview. That should change who and in whom you seek confidence. Because if God has brought you here for this place, for this time, then God has purposes for you in this place and in this time. And if God was so intentional in His confidence to place you here and in this time, then shouldn't you and I also be intentionally confident that we are here for this place and in this time and no man can dispute that? Because the one who is fully God fully kept the promise that He fully made. You see, something dramatic, something awesome, something beyond description for for human terms has happened to you and I. It says that in Him we were circumcised without hands and putting off a bodily flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, the mysterious thing that has happened to you and I, all that which was sinful of us, all that which was dying in us, all of that which was corrupt, all of that which was going to be antithesized by God, all of that is dead and cut off of us, removed from us. In the same way in circumcision, that flesh is removed from the body, your sinfulness has been removed from you and I. Don't you see that's what's being said here? That Christ came to your heart. Not speaking of your literal organ that pumps in your chest, but to the seat of who you are, to the will of who you are, to the persona of who you are. He came to that and He cut away everything that was wrong about you and made it right. 
And so that as you sit here today, no man can take captive of you over Christ, because Christ is the one who's made you right. And that place where men would manipulate, that place where men and women would try to condescend to look at you, that's all been made right. And they have no right to do that to you. And in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That even your own death has been cut away from you. Oh, sure. The flesh will separate. The flesh will go back to the ground as it's supposed to. I'm going to be circumcised from this mic. But the reality is, the truth, you and I will never taste the cold, hard death in its sting. You and I will never know the blackness of being alone. Yea, though I walk through only the valley of the shadow of death. It's just a shadow. I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. We are never alone. We're never without Him. There's never a a spiral down into darkness. But there's only a passing from darkness into light with the One who is light. We can have a confidence. Not only should we be intentional about our confidence in the One who's made this promise to us and sealed it, but the one who's also kept it. Look with me at verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive. God has made you alive. God has made you alive. Good. It's worried there for a moment. <laughs> I wonder if anyone ever thought a bunch of New Yorkers would say amen. (laughs) How did he do it? In verse 14, he canceled the record of debt that stood between, that stood against us with his legal demands and he set them aside. Look at how he did it. It says he nailed them to the cross putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Himself. This is is the irony of all ironies. We see the God of the universe naked, spread out on a cross, supposedly shamed, supposedly defeated, Supposedly humiliated, beaten, whipped, finally in death. And the irony of all ironies is it wasn't his humiliation, but
but it was the humiliation of all that was against us being defeated. And in that, He kept that promise way back in Genesis 4, 3 or 4, that the curse would be reversed in His seed. Then in 16, we see not only are we to have confidence in the promise keeper, but confidence in the great freedom giver. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or Sabbath. And he goes down this laundry list of things. He says, and not holding fast to that head. Whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. I'm sorry. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his own sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head of the church, Christ, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through the joints and the ligaments as it grows with a growth that is from God. Listen to this. False religion, man's rules, a laundry list of things that you must do to look Christian won't do you any good at all. And if you're finding your hope in that, if you're finding your security in that, you have lost touch with Jesus. You're looking to your own work and you're looking to the work of others to be your ability to give yourself freedom that you have no ability to give yourself. Only the one with the keys to free you can free you. You must have the work of Jesus to free you from your inability to perfectly do the work that Jesus did. And if anyone is trying to tell you anything different from that, they have lost touch with Jesus. Let me talk about the positive and the negative of this for just a minute. The positive is this. You can have amazing confidence in your relationship with God because everything that stood between you and God is gone. It's been removed. Not of your own doing. You, you know, you can look in the mirror this morning or this afternoon or you can look at the person next to you and go, how the heck did that happen? I know me. There's some stuff really messed up about me inside. 
There's stuff you don't know. It's been taken care of. It's been removed. It's been covered. It's been cut off. It has no longer any tangible touch to you whatsoever. We don't know what I'm about to do. It's gone. You're free. Someone is saying right now in their own mind, it can't be that easy. It just can't be that easy. It's not. Let me promise you. I'm not giving you a pie in the sky. That's easy. It's so difficult that you can't handle it. It was so difficult that it took the death of the Son of God to free you. But if He has freed you, then you are free indeed. You no longer need to live as one who has to please people. You and I live as those who are pleasing to God. And thereby are able to give people joy. The negative side of this. Don't try to imprison other people. Don't you dare be the one who says, you're not behaving the way you should behave. You're not trusting in the things that you should trust in. Especially when you're pointing to anything other than the work of Jesus on the behalf of that person. Jesus didn't die and make you judge. He did die and give us spirits of discernment. But he did not die to make us be condescending one towards the other. You do not want to be on the side of looking down of other people in this church. You do not want to be the one who's got bitterness in your heart towards someone else in this body or what's going on with this body. Or what Christ is doing in this body. Because if you have, you find yourself opposed. Not to the persons. And not to the plan. But to Jesus. And you say, well, what about when I disagree with something? Yes, you should disagree with it. You should vocalize disagreement. But you should not disagree disagreeably. You should not disagree in the way that you think that your way is the only way. But with love and with a wash pail and a basin of dirty foot water, you come to a situation with love in your heart, realizing in humility that you're addressing a brother and a sister. Or you're addressing something that God may be doing in this body. Not finding yourself in condescension and in anger and in bitterness, but finding yourself in hopefulness and in reconciliation and looking forward 
to how God will glorify Himself in all these situations. One way, only one way that you and I can do that with one another. That if we have confidence in the promise maker. Who has promised that he would put us together for a time such as this to do great things through us. Who poured himself not only out for us, but has also poured himself into us. That the same way that Jesus has poured himself into me, he's also poured himself into you. And there's where you and I find our most common of common grounds. We don't address one another as simple, mere people. We address one another as those who are filled with the embodiment of our Savior. As we approach one another, long ago when I first came, you remember what I said? We should look at one another and go, ha, it's you. And there was a reason for that. Because it is you and it's him. And all of him is in all of you. Well, that person doesn't deserve to have all of him. Well, neither do you. Who's that man in the pulpit think he is to tell us that? It's all of me who has all of him speaking to all of you who also have all of him. We also would have intentional confidence looking at the empty cross, a cross with no one who hangs on it. Because the work was accomplished, understanding he did it. He did it. Hallelujah, he did it. He did what no one else could do. He emptied hell. And we have confidence in the Christ who gives you and I freedom to see each other and to interact with one another in a new and different way than ever before. Oh, how would our homes be different if we realized spouse to spouse, parent to child, child to parent, we are all filled with the full fullness of Jesus? How would our relationships outside be different? How would, how would your relationships here in the pew be different if you realized that person that I'm with, the person who I'm speaking to, the person who I'm interacting with, the person I'm working with, the person I'm singing next to, the person I'm listening to, the person I'm reading Scripture with, has all of the fullness of Christ within them? Would it be different? What would happen to our community if we were a household of God filled with that kind of attitude? Well, you remember our call to worship this morning, right? 
your attitude should be the same as Christ. Who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but found himself, what? As a servant. And humbled himself, even to death on a cross. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray.